Smartcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Has Roger Smith RSVP'd yet? Wall Street. I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been but there. I love the entertainment business. Done and that. being hired by a company called Carol Co. Pictures. And that. Was the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous life. people. experience with Orson Welles. Barbara Streisand. How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra? And now he's and talking. Of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast. Who the f is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. On this episode, one of the most heinous murders in California history. Before the OJ trial, there were the Menendez brothers. Roger wasn't just courtside, he even testified, but it cost him one friendship. People may not know this, but John Gregory Dunn's brother was Dominic Dunn, who was at one point probably the most spectacular failure in Hollywood history. But before we head to the courtroom, a little backstory involving a great literary couple who were also F.O.R., friends of Roger. Another person who I had reason to think about recently when the news of her death came over was Joan Didion. And Joan and her husband, John Gregory Dunn, a excellent novelist, not in the same league as his wife, but True Confessions was probably his, his best known book. And a movie. And a, mo and a very good movie with Duvall and De Niro. And I moved to LA in 87 to be in the movie business. And I discovered the interesting thing about Los Angeles, uh, I won't use the word society, about circles of friendship. The people who were actual working executives in the business were total bores. Nobody outside the business wanted to really know them because all they cared about was their careers and then what the next picture was, et cetera. But there was a group of unbelievably interesting intellectuals, artists, writers, that, and interestingly, people whose careers hadn't gone that well. They were gone too well. They were, they were in a different league. Traded but, up a little. Or, yeah, but there yeah. was a sort of, in LA, you had, unlike New York, you had a set a group of people, and I fell in with people who included John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion in their set and got to know them. And for people who don't know, we should say they were diehard New Yorkers and were wooed out to, or no, Connecticut, right? No, no, and they were wooed out to Hollywood. Yes, except for the fact that she was born and grew up in Sacramento. Oh, and I she, didn't know that. Oh, and she was, she's, was uh, probably understood California at, meaning not L.A., not Hollywood, California. Her ancestors were people who survived the Donner Party and the people who were crossing in the 1840s. And so she really understood and got California. 
And but they were both working in New York. They were she both. Was yeah, oh yeah. She'd been. Vogue. She'd come. She'd here at at Vogue, and uh, and her byline in magazines was well enough known that uh, like a Clifford Odets or like mm. other writers, they got sort of lured out to Hollywood. Yes, and 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 indeed, I think they very consciously said, "This is how we will make enough money to have a com- very comfortable life, while subsidizing their art," and in her case. That was wonderful because the books she did, starting with Slouching Toward Bethlehem in 65, I'm going to guess, was this wonderful collection of of essays. And of course, this was about at the time of the hippie invasion in California. And she, she wrote about that particular thing. But they were just charming, interesting people at casual dinners and stuff that I... Their house was always open. It had the reputation of... Come over, there'll be a dinner, and you wouldn't yes, know who would be right. there. And people may not know this, but John Gregory Dunn's brother was Dominic Dunn, who was at one point probably the most spectacular failure in Hollywood history. <laughs> he had lost every, he had gotten divorced from his lovely wife, Lenny. Uh, he had was literally forced to sell his furniture and go live in a cabin in Oregon with zero money. I mean, in Hollywood, you can survive anything as long as you keep the house in Bel Air and the, and the, and the least car. As long as you got that, you can do something. And then he discovered this thing about writing about crime. And I take some slight credit for launching that career because we knew each other, not mutual friends, and he, when the Menendez murders took place, he knew that I was working for Jose and that I was then now taking over the company and running it in Jose's stead. And he wanted to do an article for Vanity Fair. And I had my own devious personal reasons for wanting him to do this because people won't remember this. At first, no one knew it was the boys. There were rumors, the mafia, Cubans, drugs. Uh, one person thought it was CAA. I said, no, they're not. They're, they're powerful, but they're not that nasty. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a debate about, you know, there was a question of who, who killed these two people. And it was only six months after the murders that the police decided it was, in fact, the boys. They arrested them. We were sitting in a board meeting at Carolco when the word came that they had, and I think one of, one of the two boys, I think it was Eric, was in a tennis tournament in Israel when he was arrested. And at first, when the, when the first Beverly Hills cop said, yeah, what about these kids? Have you looked at them? And I thought, oh, yeah, of course. These kids that took shotguns and blew their parents to kingdom come. I don't think that's very likely. Indeed, the day after the... Menendez murders. I was in my house in Studio City having cappuccino when I get a call at eight in the morning on Monday. Did you hear the news? I said, no, what news? Are you sitting down? I said, yeah, I'm sitting down. What is it? And then he told me that Jose and his wife Kitty had been shotgunned to death in their television room. And you knew them. You knew. Oh, them. oh, oh, oh. I, 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 so, worked, yeah, I was, was his number two. I worked with him every right. day. And I had grown to truly loathe him. I couldn't stand the man. But Uh, for the record, you were never suspected. Well, I'll tell you about that. (laughs) 
our company, the company that Jose ran, was a division of a larger company called Carolco. We were, they owned 50% of us. And the head of Carolco, who's Jose's nominal boss, was asked by the police, um, what about this guy, Roger Smith? <laughs> I mean, he, you tell me he's taking over the company. He's getting the, to Jose's job and title. Should we be looking at him? And Peter Hoffman said, well, I just don't think he's the type. I said, oh, Peter, that's the highest compliment ever anyone's ever paid me. I'm not the type to take a shotgun and blow people to death. Did the boys come and visit the office when their dad oh, was working there? This older son, who was a really nasty piece of business, uh, Lyle, had a summer job. And I remembering once when I had a job working at my father's company, I was told, you will work harder than anybody else. You will come in earlier. You will leave later, et cetera. Um, I then go to Lyle and I said, look, I've thought of some interesting projects that you could do and um, uh, would learn help you understand the business. He basically told me to go peddle my paper somewhere else that he was, and he would come in around 11, leave for lunch at 12.30, come back at 2, leave at 4. I mean, that was, that was his job. And his father didn't seem to have any problem with that. But, you know, when they first said that we're, th we're looking at the boys, I thought this was crazy because the lawyers had me meet with their uncle and aunt who were now their substitute, trustees or just trustee, substitute parents. And I think I'm meeting with the two bereaved orphans. I mean, I'm going, oh, the poor kids, you know. And I did not think they were, the, in fact, the murderers. Except I got one little inkling that something wasn't quite right when I'm explaining about how stock options will vest and they'll get this and they'll get that. And I said, and they're, um, you know, the uh, $5 million insurance policy, you'll get that. Eric, the younger one, who I always thought of and still do as the, the more innocent of the two, said, and the uh, $15 million key man life insurance policy, do we get that? I thought, how does he know about this? He has to be reading the, the prospectus to see what his father's deal was. I said, no, that money goes to Bankers Trust. It was to secure the loan of $75 million. They get the money. And I'll, my first thought is, oh, God, we, I bet we didn't get double indemnity. <laughs> so, but it was, I, was, I was suspicious, but I, I literally couldn't believe that they were going to be the suspects, uh, let alone charged. But it was literally six months into the investigation, we had hired John Scanlon, who you probably have known. Yeah, I know that. Brilliant, brilliant PR guy. Yeah. Because the Wall Street Journal was suggesting that the company was up to its neck in, in all kinds of mafia things and so forth. Um, and so we wanted to protect our reputation. That's why I saw helping Nick Dunn write the story would get it the version we want, which is at that point, nobody knew who did it. Well, when the boys came under Friends suspicion, of Don, Dunn called him Nick. Yes, friends called him Nick, sorry. And when the boys came under suspicion, Dominic Dunn, whose daughter had been murdered by the cook at Ma Maison restaurant, and the guy got two or three years or something like that, he had this thing which he then developed about bringing unindicted criminals to justice. 
And actually, we had dinner once in a Chinese restaurant, and, and I said, Nick, there's been a lot of people who have made it their mission to prove that the wrongly convicted are innocent. You have set yourself up as the opposite. You're going to go find people who the law has somehow managed to, to overlook. He was on a mission to prove that... The executioner. The, or he the was kids, the, yes, he was, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, we should also explain that uh, her brother was Griffin Dunn, the young her, woman who, the, the daughter... Oh, uh, oh, oh, yes, of course. Yes, yeah, this was Griffin Dunn, who... Actor and director. Actor and director yeah. who did So this a was a show business family. Show business family, yes. So Roger Smith thought, this is the guy to cover the trial. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the trial yet. It was, at this point, just the original story. And, and just to back up for just sure. a moment, that six-month period before the boys were arrested... Who were they looking at? You mentioned rumors. Was okay. it the mob? Was it, it wasn't Roger Smith? Well, or was it disgruntled businesses? Who I, were am, they? I am happy to say, and this is a little patting myself on the back, five days after the murder, the Wall Street Journal ran a page one right-hand column thing about the case in which they were examining a connection because of Jose being Cuban. There was some Cuban connection. There was a mafia thing, which was because we, and really I, had just bought a company from a convicted gangster named Morris Levy, uh, who was very close to the Gambino family. But we bought a company from him that was a very clean company in the, in the music store business. But they thought that maybe there was some connection there. And again, I say, I don't I forget. Oh, I know the CAA thing came because of, we put out a movie about John Belushi's death and that we were being punished for that. I mean, it was, it, was, it was, and I'm quoted in the article as saying, I am reasonably certain that when the truth comes out, we will find this has something to do with some unknown, bizarre aspect of Jose's personal life, not his business life. Everyone thought, oh, what a flack. There he is trying to, trying to protect the company, you know. And trying to, um, but I was right. And then, of course, once it was clear that these boys were going to go on trial, I got a call one day. I was, in, I was living in L.A., but I had a little apartment in New York, and I was in my New York apartment. Someone says, hi, my name is Leslie Abramson. You know who I am? I said, well, I know who you are, yes. And she was the brilliant defense attorney for the boys. So Being I, paid for by the boys, I mean by the estate? By estate, the estate, yeah, yeah, the estate, yeah, the, the family in a sense. She said, I've been told, you've been told not to talk to me. I said, well, that's wrong, and I want you to know if they had told me to, I would ignore it. I, you want to talk to me? Come talk to me. I said, I have to be careful what I say, but I'll certainly be happy to talk to you. And she was in New York. I said, Come on over now. I've got bagels and, and, and cream cheese and lox. You know, we'll have a sit and have a little breakfast. And as she unwound the story, this was the first I'd heard about the idea that they had been sexually abused by their father, particularly the younger boy. It was not so clear about the older boy. And she said, you know, would I be willing to? Um, and I told her that I thought this was man was a thoroughly nasty human being. When he hired me in 87, he offered me a three-year contract. I said, Jose, why don't you make it a two-year contract? That way, if you're not happy or I'm not happy, we don't have to stay together. That contract was up on August 31st, 1989, 
and the murder was August 19th. And I had had a meeting with Jose, and he had a way of humiliating people who worked underneath him, and the, even even low middle level people, not just senior bully, executive, though. bully, total bully. And I I watched him do this to sort of like the district sales manager, you know, not a senior executive. And as the guy left the meeting, humiliated and nearly in tears, Jose looks and says, sees my face, and he says, "Oh, Roger, don't worry." I would never do that to you. I said, Jose, don't worry. I know that you would. <laughs> I said, it's perfectly okay because I, I, I have a very good contract and it would cost you money to do it, but okay. He said, well, you know, your problem, Smith, is you need to be loved. You should work on being feared. I said, well, Jose, that's a good idea except for one thing. Fear has a funny way of turning into hatred. I, you know, what about respect? How about the, somewhere in between loved? I said, yeah, do I want to be loved? Yeah, most people do, most normal people. But I don't think I let it shade my business judgment. And that was three weeks before the kids murdered him. Wow. Yeah. Now, these kids who you weren't crazy about when you found no. out... That- and I, by the way, I had gone to their home for dinner a number of times. I mean, I really, I, I knew them, and the one kid had worked that, there that summer. Um, and I guess I have to ask, because everyone listening will want to know, you never saw any evidence of any sexual impropriety between the father and the son? Well, or- the father was the most macho man I've ever met. He was a t- classic Cuban macho guy. And, and so the idea that he... If he'd had daughters, I might have worried about them, but he had sons. I didn't think they would cross my mind that this was happening. And in fact, when Leslie explained to me that this was their defense, I said, well, Leslie, you will understand that if you are accused of murdering your parents and there's no question that you did it, that's not a question, about the only way you could possibly get off is a sexual abuse defense. So... Or insanity. or Insanity, yeah. I said, so I am not going to participate in something like that if it's anything to, to buttress that unless I'm absolutely convinced that this is true. She had me meet for two hours with the lead expert witness they had, as, who was the head of the Indiana University Criminal Psychology Department, and went through exactly what are the earmarks of, of these kind of cases and what and how he was absolutely convinced that the young boy had been sexually abused in the most graphic sort of way. And based on that, I said that I was willing to testify. Um, as a defense witness. As a reverse character witness for Jose. <laughs> I would, my, my expertise was to tell him people what a thoroughly nasty human being he was. And as I said to a friend once, I said, look, nobody deserves to get murdered by their children. But if I had to pick one person for it, it would be Jose. (laughs) The trial took place in Van Nuys, California, in a sort of somewhat working class community. And I saw the jury as I, I had agreed to testify. And it was televised, yes, or part. Well, let me get to. I'll, I'll get to that. Okay, sorry. Right. It was the first case that Court TV did a gavel to gavel coverage of, and I didn't know it was being televised while I was on the stand. 
I was very relaxed. I was nervous. I, I knew that I only had to look, make sure that I didn't look like I had some personal vendetta against Jose and I was out to besmirch his reputation. And Were you coached at all by Abramson or any of yes, the people? Uh -huh. Yes, they, well, they asked you questions and we went over and discussed how you would respond to certain things. Did you have eye contact with the boys as you were talking? From yes. The... I later found out that they were deeply appreciative of what I did because what people, I'm sure, forget, no reason why they'd remember, it's the first trial end in a, ended in a hung jury. After I finished my direct examination by Leslie Abramson, the prosecutor, a woman, came up to me and said, Mr. Smith, I take it you didn't like Mr. Menendez. I said, Mr. Menendez was not very likable. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's the fact. And I was very calm. It was only when I got home several hours later and found that I had 40 messages on my answering machine from people who had been watching it on television. I thought, oh my God, I didn't know it was on TV. I would have been so nervous if I'd known that. And Did you wear two thirds of a suit that you bought <laughs> uh, years earlier? Um, the, the Menendez trial was a year or so after the OJ trial, and it never quite reached the fascination in LA that the OJ, nothing equaled the, the Simpson trial, but this one, everybody was interested in it. And when it became known that I was a player in this in this drama, I started getting a lot more dinner invitations to the point where finally at one point I said, I'd be delighted to come to your house for dinner, but on the condition that you not ask me about the Menendez trial, if you still want Or me. let me bring Dominic Dunn and you can ask him <laughs> everything. Well, Dominic and I, 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 what I did was I, I wrote a three-page, single-spaced, typewritten, I think we still had a typewriter then, um, letter to him saying, this is what you got wrong in the articles. This is what you knew was right and you ignored it to make a case for your wanting to sort of indict these boys. And it was bad journalism and very sloppy. So to be clear, you and, and Dunn were at opposite sides of this case. Oh, and absolutely. It, yes. and, yeah. and it was a, definitely a, a setback for your a friendship or acquaintance. Uh, yes. Uh, it, um, were you, in fact, the only sympathetic witness? Or were there others that uh, testified family, about what a family this members dad or was. things like that? But I was the only supposedly neutral, sympathetic witness. And when the hung jury resulted in it, had to be a new trial, which I was surprised to learn in California, the same judge would do it. And the judge was very hostile to the boys, very hostile, clearly. They just get a new jury, obviously. They get a new jury, right. yes. And I am curious about the boys watching you and you watching them during the trial. Well, it came, Leslie later told me, because she was the one who spoke to them regularly, that they were deeply appreciative of my trying to give a balanced picture of what they were up against. How difficult was the prosecution to you besides asking you if you did or didn't like him? They tried to create a sense that I had, I had it in for Jose, that I had some ulterior motive. And I said, no, I, I had made up my mind in 10 days, I was giving him my notice that I was leaving and not renewing my contract. And fortunately, a few months before, the merger of Time and my old employer, Warner, had resulted in my having, for the first time in my life, real financial independence, what, what Hollywood calls you money. And so I was willing to 
say goodbye. I don't. I, I like the job. I like the company. I was. I like the work, but I didn't like Jose. And I assume that that court appearance was the last time you saw in the flesh the Menendez brothers. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, the judge ruled that I was not allowed to testify at the at the second trial, and called my testimony inherently prejudicial. I said, Leslie, I did my best. <laughs> and even your testimony uh, on the record wasn't introduced in the second trial. No, they, they, that, they were not allowed to do that. So look, did I want to see these boys let off? No. Did I want to see them not sent to, there was still the possibility of, of an execution in California at that time. Right. And I am violently opposed to any form of capital punishment, but certainly not in this case where there was extenuating circumstances. You know, they're recently petitioned to be to be let out, and there's a, a lot of controversy about it, but they, this is now... How uh, many years now? About... 30. 30, 30 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. And they, for, at first they were in separate facilities, which was really cruel, and they were in very, very high security. I don't think they're a threat to anybody else. Uh, Remind people listening, and me, because I don't recall, exactly what the circumstances under the hung jury was. I mean, what was the thing that, that jurors couldn't decide on? Well, I, I'm not sure if they said it was six to six or seven to five. I don't know how, how that, I, don't, I, I suspect that was, was mentioned. I don't remember. It, was, it wasn't one lone holdout. I know that. It was a, it was a definite break in the, in the two, side, to two sides. And um, it was based on, do you believe this abuse defense? And if so, do you think it's a sufficient reason to be allowed to get away with, with murdering your parents? Uh, I mean, my biggest problem was why they, why they killed the mother. I mean, she was a sweet, nice, slightly alcoholic lady. Uh, in fact, when I was I was forced forced to give the eulogy, and I I tried to bow out gracefully. I was not allowed. I said, "No, no." There were like four or five speakers, but you have, you represent the company. You have to say something. And I decided to focus as the first two people who went ahead of me spoke only about Jose. I said, "Let us please not forget Kitty," and talked about her and what a nice, sweet woman she was, and said you know, bland, safe things because I wanted, uh, and I, I talked about how forceful Jose was and what a, a brilliant mind he had. And was that the last time you visited that grave? <laughs> well, I think they were buried in Princeton. I think that's what they were. But, um, but the sentence they were given in the second trial was what California calls LWPOP, life without possibility of parole. It's truly cruel. I mean, now let's talk about the books and movies that happened about that. And were you at all involved in any of it, or or did I you participate in any? I, did Dunn write a book after it? No, Dominic Dunn continued to write about the case, and he he was very focused on. There was intimations that the younger son was gay, and he was using this to say, you see. He can't claim that he was being sexually abused by his father. I mean, it was just nuts stuff. And and I, as I say, I confronted Dominic directly, both face-to-face -face and in, in writing. Indeed, I sent a copy of the letter I wrote excoriating him and for terrible journalistic ethics to his brother John and to Joan Didion. 
they were at the moment in a deep feud with him, and they loved the letter. They called me and said, oh, that's great. You really got him. Later, they patched it up, and I think they held it against me that I had been a, such an uh, overt enemy of their brother. But at that time, they thought it was a great idea. I was asked every time there was a, a documentary about it, someone called and say, would you, would you agree to appear? I said no and no until one that I did be interviewed for that came out about I think seven years ago, something like that. And they were very serious people. It was, I want to say bravo, but I'm not sure it was. And they made it clear that they were going to take a really serious journalistic, non-sensational approach. And indeed, uh, the part that I think I was on camera for about 20 minutes. But I don't have that tape. It's probably... Some Hard to avoid some kind of sensationalism in this story because it was tailor-made for Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's even better. The house that they lived in in Beverly Hills was on Elm Drive, so they, their stories were nightmare on Elm Drive. <laughs> they were very strange people, the Menendezes. They gave a Christmas party for the senior staff of the company, and I found out that they had bought their Christmas tree from a Beverly Hills florist completely decorated. Now that just struck me as weird. <laughs> what the, the whole point of a Christmas tree is to decorate it, not to pay somebody, I'm sure, hundreds and hundreds of dollars to send over a decorated tree. But you, there was always tension in the air. I mean, I once, I overheard many conversations. Jose didn't, he didn't, give me enough respect to, to monitor his speaking in front of me. He spoke very openly because he didn't care. And I would hear him scream at his wife because she'd ordered the wrong pizza toppings. I mean, there was just petty, petty things like that. He uh, had a big, long conversation. I was, we were in a, on an East Coast trip and we we're in a limousine and he's I'm listening to him talk to his son for 20 minutes about his roommate problems. I thought, my God, my father didn't even know who my roommates were, I mean, let alone getting involved in this sort of thing. He was just a total domineering person, all of which made me believe that this molestation defense was, was based in reality. And a guy, if he had not been killed by his own kids, was going to meet some kind of an end that wasn't savory, huh? Maybe. He was the kind of person who, when he got really angry he'd lower his voice to a whisper. He would intimidate people so, and he intimidated me a little, not a lot, but he was, it was just, everything was calculated, every move to show dominance, and it was, I think, related to stories he told about having come from a very comfortable upper middle class Cuban family to coming to America in, in poverty, and at one point was a busboy at the 21 Club, and how much he hated these rich people who came in and, 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 and you know, had contempt for him, et cetera. It's not, it's not easy, I don't, I don't, I feel sorry for him in a sense, but only, only in a sense, yeah. Well, the contempt for him was in his own family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your opinion, will the boys ever get out? I think they, they, they. I think there's a good chance they'll get parole at this point. It's up to Governor Newsom, and I think his instincts. I don't think there's a political downside to, to freeing them at this point. At least I hope there isn't. 
If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Acid Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.